That night at the dance practice, everyone kept asking Allison where her young man was, falling into that kind of collective wide-eyed encouragement people usually save for slow children or the desperately shy. She didn't mind. Didn't mind that Sarah kept referring to Max as Yosemite Sam. She'd seen the tattoo, apparently. Didn't mind that Mr. Kessler kept giving her secret looks, as if they were both trench coat spies in some old movie. Twice she went out to the garage to turn the key in the ignition and to listen to the buzz of the radio, watch the headlights rise up Lazarus-like from the peeling hood of the vet. Inside she drank wine and ate the cheese and crackers and danced and danced with Mr. Rossi, who kept explaining to her how one day the Mississippi River would change course and head straight for the Gulf, leaving New Orleans sitting on the banks of a stinky sewage ditch and how the OSS had once launched a plan to put estrogen in Hitler's food and turn him into a woman. She just took everything in, thinking about Max, who had gone back to Morgantown to make some measurements of the hotel. It was the most fun she'd had in a long time. Even Bill had given up his alchemy for the night and demonstrated several new moves with Sarah, showing off, dancing her into sweatiness. Her mood carried into the next morning, when she awoke alone in her bed, the first real bite of autumn chill carried in the air. Max had stayed over in Morgantown, sleeping in the ballroom again, calling her after midnight on his cell phone. His voice echoed in the big room, where she imagined their handprints, fossils, still dotting the dusty stage, their sounds of lovemaking seeping into all that old wood and plaster. He told her that he and Tom had drunk quart bottles of rolling rock on the roof, then flown paper airplanes for half an hour, writing little notes on them and sending them off. One of the notes had been to her, telling her he missed her. She told him about Mr. Rossi and Hitler's potential breasts and how much she wanted him back in Wiley Ford. As she got out of bed, there was some commotion outside and through the window she recognized Tanner Miltenberger pulling up on his motorcycle with the battered sidecar, where he kept his scuba equipment and recovered golf balls. Following him in her big living-room-sized Cadillac was Frida Landry, wearing her wide hat and pearls, and some photographer draped in cameras wearing a fisherman's vest. Word spread, as it will, through the town like a flu, and soon enough Mr. Kessler was there on the banks of the lake, some of the brooding boys from the Votex school, a few neighbors from around the lake. Mrs. Skidmore arrived with Tyra Wallace, the two of them smoking cigarettes and drinking big cups of coffee from 7-Eleven. Tanner Miltenberger looked over his small audience, the first he'd likely ever had for a dive, and smiled, his teeth half-missing and brown. He sat in the grass and tugged on his wetsuit, zippering it up the back. Allison stood off to one side, her hands in her pockets, taking it all in until Mr. Kessler sidled up beside her, his powder-blue jumpsuit rumpled, smelling of old sweat. If this doesn't fly, our little ruse, he said quietly, thanks for trying anyway. Why wouldn't it fly? She drew back a little at the word ruse, but that's exactly what it was. They're expecting to find a car down there, Allison, not a few scattered parts. But parts equal car. Wasn't that the plan? She found herself speaking in low whispers, her mouth near his ear, 
drawn into the intimacy of lying. This lake has an eight-foot drop downstream, and I'll never be able to drain that. I mean, drain the lake, the stream is still there, okay? With me? She nodded. The plan was to say the car was somewhere on the bottom of the stream, and the parts backed that up. I wasn't planning on any goddamn diver going down and searching the whole thing. I mean, this is Wiley Ford. We don't have divers. So what? So it's a magic trick, remember? It's the parts you can see and the bottom you can't. That equals car. You send Tanner Miltonberger backstage, tripping over all the wires and mirrors, it ruins everything. This made sense to her. Even with the parts, the question remained, where was the car? Mr. Kessler stood beside her, cracking his knuckles while Tanner Miltonberger fought with his flippers. It's like Nessie, she said, the Loch Ness Monster. If they could drain that lake, no more story. He nodded. You got it, Missy. Told you you were smart. Yes, sir. Not knowing preserves our faith. If they ever found Christ's bones, Christianity would turn into Amway. The New Testament becomes last year's almanac. I guess I have a lot to learn about duplicity, Gordon. Here I thought you hired Tanner Miltonberger to corroborate. No, ma'am. My loving son hired him. This puts me in check, right? Tightens the screws? We'll see. The idea almost scared her that Max might be doing this, making a chess game of his father's humiliation. And what scared her was not that he would do it, but that she had no idea if he might be thinking of such a thing. That you could never, ever really know another person. Put on your own flippers and touch their dark and murky bottom. Long friendship didn't do it, nor marriage, nor sisterhood. A magic trick was right. You'd think you understood someone, had your eyes on the very last truth of them, and when you reached out your hand, that truth became nothing. The solid bottom melted into silt. He told you he hired Tanner Miltonberger for the express purpose of not finding your car? Don't be naive, Allison. No, of course, he said Mr. Miltonberger was checking out the dam, something-something gobbledygook. Just then, Tanner managed the second of his flippers, then stood up, starting for the mud. He flapped out into it, tipped and awkward, while everyone stood around the banks, watching him walk down the steep pitch of the lake bottom, past the stone buildings of Colaville, past the wide arch of the bridge, under which the stream still flowed, widening out near the dam. He paused for a second to peer inside the door of one of the buildings, the one that had once been the company store. The whole thing looked so strange, a frogman down in a crater, taking a walk through a ghost town, window shopping. When he reached the point where the arm of the stream widened out, he strode on in, vanishing in slow increments. While they waited, there was not much to say, and talk fell to the snap of cold weather, the prospects for the high school basketball team this winter. Some of the Votech boys stepped inside the garage, checking out the vet. Mrs. Skidmore told a story about a man named Winston Ackerman, who was reputed to have stayed in his house when the Corps of Engineers flooded Colaville, refusing to leave. Frida made notes while Mrs. Skidmore explained how Winston had argued his position with a shotgun, had tacked down his rocking chair to the front porch with angle irons, then bound himself to the chair with a logging chain. 
He didn't want his face floating up for all those developers and town fathers to laugh at, Mrs. Skidmore said. He was staying put. When the waters began to rise, the last anyone saw of Winston Ackerman was him sitting chained to his rocker, shotgun across his lap, a cat cradled in his arm, a plate of sausage and beans on a table beside him. Oh, for God's sakes, Gordon said. That rot will be in tomorrow's paper, I'm sure. You're just jealous, Allison said. I suppose next week we'll have Winston Ackerman's sightings. The rocker man of Wiley Ford, banging his logging chain against his bean plate. Gordon nervously polished his glasses with a handkerchief, huffing on them repeatedly, frowning at the results. Allison kept her eyes on the fading ripple where Tanner Miltenberger had disappeared. She imagined an entire city for him down there, instead of the one or two ruins left standing. Imagine the water flooding over again, imagine the car as real, and him climbing in the door, starting the engine, taking a slow tour of Colaville, waving at the bony remains of Winston Ackerman and his cat. She shook the idea away and focused on the pool of water where Tanner had disappeared, the muddy banks tapering down. Love, death, lies... They could all be so big when they were hidden, so cavernous in the dark of imagining them, and then so small and shallow when the dark drained away. When Tanner Miltenberger came up dripping out of the water, arms held aloft as though he were being taken hostage, he held in his hands two of the hubcaps they'd tossed in. Allison watched and felt Gordon lean in against her shoulder. His and hers, he said.